Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, you uh, might not know who I am. My name is Justin Lesline. I work here at First Presbyterian Church. And uh, John Kinzer, regrettably, cannot be here today. He is very sick. Uh, and so I'm filling in for him. He is not sick so much that you should probably start calling him. It, it's not unusually sick. It's just that he couldn't be here today. So uh, you can pray for him. He always needs prayer. And if you've met John, you know, he, he needs a lot of prayer. <laughs> um, but uh, I just encourage you guys, uh, if you think about it, we're stu- doing a study on faith. And today we're going to talk a little bit about faith at the end. But uh, it's a really good series. If you guys know some people who you'd like to invite to come here on Wednesdays, that would just uh, be a really good opportunity to share a meal with someone and uh, hear from God's word. And also, uh, like I said last week, if you guys uh, are coming here but don't have a place you regularly worship on Sundays, we'd love to have you here with us at First Presbyterian Church. Um, if you have a Bible or you want to grab one off of your table, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6 today. So you can put your finger there in Mark chapter 6. Before we get to reading Mark chapter 6, I'd like to start by just giving you a brief word of introduction just on the author Mark and the book of Mark. If you just open your Bible and you start reading Mark, you'll come across Mark as a completely unique and different kind of writing than had ever been done before in history. Uh, we We don't really think this way, but Mark is not a history book. It's not historical per se. It's not a biography even though it is historical and it is biographical in nature at points. But Mark is a completely different kind of book. It's a completely different kind of letter. It is a gospel. And it's a persuasive book. It's a persuasive letter. Mark makes no bones about he's not trying to hide anything. He's trying to persuade his reader. And the thing he's trying to persuade them of is that Jesus is the Christ or that Jesus is God. So, from the forefront, he's not trying to hide anything. He's trying to convince you of something. So, as we come to this, we'll see that if you just read through the book of Mark on your own, you'll notice over and over and over the the author tries to put you in places where you answer the question, who is this Jesus? Another thing that's unique about the book of Mark is that it's the earliest gospel account that we have. Uh, it's anonymously written, yet we know who wrote it, right? So this might be the most poorly kept secret in all Christendom, okay? So Mark is the author of this letter, and if you start trying to flip through the Bible and try and find this character in the scriptures, you might not find him. He's one of these people who has a double name, uh, like my youngest son, his name is Robert Knox, and we call him Knox. It kind of happens here. Mark his real name is John Mark. And if you start flipping through the scripture, you'll soon see, boy, I know this guy. I see him kind of all over the place. Uh, John Mark was a relative, most likely, of Barnabas. He basically followed around Paul and Peter and did ministry with them. And at the end of Paul's life, when he is facing execution and he's about to die, he writes in 2 Timothy 4.11 these words. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. I don't know how 
you would like to be spoken of, but I would love for something like that to be said about me. You have the Apostle Paul who's writing to Timothy, and he can ask for anyone or anything, and he's like, send me Mark. There's a guy who the Lord uses, and the Lord is anointed. That's, that would be a really good thing to be said about you. So this is who our author is. And uh, he spent time with Paul, Barnabas, but he was mainly a disciple of Peter. And if you are familiar with Peter in Scripture, you'll soon see that uh, as his disciple, he kind of takes on some of those things. Uh, For instance, we see uh, a lot of times the way you might speak, your children end up speaking like you do. They end up doing things the way that you do them. Well, that's the same here with Mark. He does a lot of the things the same way that Peter does. He's all about action. Peter was all about doing something. Sometimes he would do before he even thought. Uh, he talks the same way. The pace of his writing is the same way. Mark's writing and Peter's sermons seem very similar because that's who he learned from. So now that we know who was writing, why he was writing, and how he was writing, let's look at Mark chapter 6, verse 45 through 52. So please follow along with me. Starting in verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave from, of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Let's pray real quick. Lord Jesus, we come to you asking that now uh, you would come teach us as you were the great teacher. Spirit, would you enable us to hear uh, the word that it might take root in our hearts. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in school, I, I really loved math. This is one of my favorite subjects. And I see some of the faces right now who have a hard time believing that anyone could really love math. And and I get this. I I was very aware in school that I was one of the very few people who just enjoyed math. Uh, And for some of you uh, who don't enjoy math, this illustration will hit home. But I love math, and this illustration still hits home. Uh, if, If you're in math class and you're looking around, you see a bunch of your friends who are pretty intelligent, pretty smart people, and the teacher is up there working on a problem putting all the information you need up there. And the teacher, you know, they finish writing, and they look around like, do you get it? And they're like, no. I, I don't get that. We don't, they don't, you don't grasp it. 
Maybe I don't grasp it or my neighbor doesn't grasp it. But you're looking up there and the teacher is explaining it correctly. All the right information is up there and you're a smart person. And you're like, that is why math is the most frustrating subject on planet Earth, right? Well, uh, today we're going to look at this passage and what we'll see is that there, it's like math is in session. Jesus is saying some stuff and doing some stuff and there's some smart people around, but they don't quite get what he's saying, get what he's doing. And uh, this passage might be old hat for some of you. Like, the, tire on, the tread on this tire is worn. Like, you've heard the story of Jesus walking on water ever since you were about yay high. Uh, let's try and come at it fresh again. You know, we'll jump in this boat together and do this. Um, This is coming right after Jesus feeds the 5,000, another miracle we're very familiar with. And if you're really familiar with the the miracle, you'll soon realize that it's not 5,000 people. It's probably at least 20,000 people. Because it's 5,000 men, then their spouses, then their children. And this is a time when people had large families. So... There's a lot of people there, and Jesus feeds maybe 20,000 or more. So you can picture this crowd. Uh, If you've ever gone to maybe a regular season Braves game, that's about 20,000 people. That's how many people are gathered around Jesus. I don't know anything that y'all have done that's gathered 20,000 people. So this is unusual. Jesus' popularity is skyrocketing at this point. It is over the top as far as... The peak of his ministry, Jesus' popularity is about as high as it's ever going to get right here. So if you can picture this, looking out, seeing 20,000 people, Jesus feeding all of them, and there's excitement in the air. They're wondering, who is this Jesus person? They're maybe in their mind entertaining the thought that this is the king who's going to come deliver us from this Roman rule. So that's the context. And then we get to our passage right here. This is immediately after that. So we're going to take this in two sections. We're going to look at verses 45 and 46. That's section one. And then second section is 47 through 52. But our first point, we got three points. But the first point is from section one and then the other two following. But I'll go ahead and give you the three points up front so that we just get that out of the way and you guys can follow along. The first point is that we're going to see something diffused. Secondly, we're going to see something exposed. And thirdly, something revealed. So something diffused, diffused, something exposed, and something revealed. Let's look at what is diffused here first in verses 45 and 46. Let me just read it one more time to keep it fresh in our mind. Immediately he made his disciples, Jesus did, get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. If you read Mark, it is an action-packed book. Mark uses the word immediately over and over and over. I was about to say it's the most used word in the gospel. I can't verify that. It may be. Okay, So he says immediately all the time. So sometimes that word can just lay flat. But when he says immediately this way... It's something different. The word is not quite the same. The tone, the way the, way the language sets up, it, it's actually different. This immediately has this innuendo of danger. 
there's danger afoot right now. And he's like, immediately. So if, if you ever watch Westerns, you're probably uh, used to this scene where, you know, maybe there's this rancher with his family and the kids are running around. Then you look to the horizon, here comes trouble. There's a posse riding over the horizon. And he says, honey, get the kids inside. You know, because trouble's about it. And they need to get to safety. And he might tell the children, you need to get inside. They've probably heard that a thousand times. But, you know, in the Western, the tone and the, like, you just know, I got to get inside right now. Well, that's kind of what's happening right here when we see immediately. The disciples need to go. They need to go right now. Uh, because whatever the situation is, it's not healthy for them. And we're going to see why in a second. But Jesus sends them away to diffuse this situation. And he's diffusing the situation for the crowd and for himself. So let's look at that. He's diffusing the situation first for the crowd because, remember, Jesus' ministry is exploding. You don't draw 20,000 people, man, woman, child, in a place that doesn't have very many people. This is kind of like George Whitfield during the Great Awakening. When he would draw 35,000 people in Boston and only 30,000 people lived in Boston... That's kind of the situation and feel you have right here. And he has a crowd who wants to make him king. Everything he's doing. He just did this great miracle. And they, the danger is that the crowd would want to take him and make him king. To have them lead him. The only problem with that is if he does that, he would get off course. See, Jesus came to earth on a mission particularly his father's mission, not the mission of 20,000 people, not the mission of maybe what Satan would have tempted him with in the desert, but he came on his father's mission. And to veer off and to go on this crusade to bring freedom to these Israelites from Rome is not what he needed. He needed to get out of this situation and take this and diffuse it. And this is a tricky deal. You have a large force around you, could easily in a moment turn into a mob. And they're loud. They're all pulling at you. Uh, Jesus was not, I think we think of this scene as like Jesus here and everyone way back there. If you know anything about Jesus' teaching ministry, it was, they were always right up on him. There's places where Jesus actually has to step off into a boat and push offshore just to have some breathing space. But somehow Jesus dismisses this crowd with grace in such a way that they go home. We don't get all the details. But I just want you to think for a second, what would have happened if Jesus didn't do that? If he didn't defuse the crowd, he went along with what they said. Here's what would have happened. Jesus would have still uh, been able to accomplish being king. But you know what wouldn't have happened is that he would have never gone to a cross, he would have never paid for sins, and we would have no inheritance in heaven and no forgiveness of sin. So Jesus doesn't just dismiss the crowd because he doesn't like their attention and he doesn't want to be king. He has us in mind. He has his Father's will in mind. So Jesus dismisses the crowd, diffuses that issue, but he also diffuses this issue for himself. And you're like, what in the world are you talking about? Jesus needed the crowd gone himself. It wasn't good for Jesus. I think we forget uh, that Jesus was 
fully God and fully human, Jesus really can be tempted in a very real way. This is not a veiled threat to become king or a veiled option to become king. So what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do every time he's tempted? He diffuses the temptation. He, he says no. So what Jesus does, he's like, i got to get out of this situation. So what does he do? He goes and he retreats to the Father. This teaches us that even Jesus had to rely on God. How much more do we then need to retreat? And rely on God. Jesus goes and seeks God in prayer for an extended period of time. Later we learn he goes out to the disciples during the fourth watch of the night. Does anyone here have any idea what time of day that is? Between 3 and 6 a.m. So he's dismissing these people before dark and he heads out to meet the disciples somewhere between 3 and 6. That's a long time. I think it's a good pattern for us to be paying attention to because we're tempted all the time. And when we're tempted, what do we do? We have two options, really. We can entertain the temptation, which usually doesn't lead to good results, or we can diffuse it. We can entertain it or diffuse it. And uh, Jesus deals with something I think that we would probably struggle with. Uh, This is the spotlight. This is the 15 minutes of... How many of you have ever just been like, I don't like it when the spotlight's on me. I don't like it when people are saying really nice things about me and think I'm awesome. I hate that when that happens. You may say that if you're a really good faker, but the reality is it feels pretty good. We're all tempted like that, and then we're tempted to think that we're big stuff. And Jesus teaches us that, nah, God's big stuff, and what he wants is better stuff. So he teaches us something to do, to pray, retreat, diffuse. So that's the first point. Jesus diffuses something. The second thing is Jesus exposes something. This comes in our second section here. So let's read 47 through 52 one more time just to get it fresh in our minds. Verse 47, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. I want to set the scene here for a second. You have the disciples on this boat crossing this, this sea or this lake, and it is stormy. Uh, the weather's not so good, but even in stormy conditions, it probably should only take them six to eight hours to get across. And that's just for a normal person. The, there's a lot of experienced boatmen or fishermen in this boat. So they're out there on this lake, and they're struggling. And what we, what we see here is just a refrain of Mark. If you read Mark and make some observations, you'll see that 
almost any time that the disciples are apart from Jesus, they're immediately distressed. Like, they immediately fall into turmoil. In this case, on the lake, they're distressed. They're distressed physically. I mean, if you've been out all night rowing in a boat and making no progress, your arms are probably jello. And uh, when you're making no progress, just imagine the emotional toll that it's taking, the mental toll that it's taking. So they're out there and they're distressed. If you also read Mark, you'll also find that the antidote to all their distress or their turmoil is always Jesus' presence or Jesus' words. As soon as Jesus shows up with his words, things change. They are no longer distressed. The turmoil goes away. But in this case, Jesus isn't there. At one point, it's so redundant in the language. In verse 47, the boat was out on the sea and he was on the land. They're making the point. The disciples are all by themselves. And they are distressed. Jesus is not there right now. And they're in grave danger. In their mind, they're probably thinking, Jesus can't save us now. You'd be scared too, probably, if you didn't think Jesus could save you and you're out there on that. I mean, you got boat in bad weather. On top of that, these are fishermen who know all the bad stories. One of the stories is that there's ghosts out there on that lake. And, you know, we, we can smile and grin. But then this is like a very fearful, frightening thing. Uh, not to everyone, perhaps, but maybe to some. And, but they're fearful. Uh, so they're, they're, they're afraid. You can see that pretty clearly. But why are they afraid? And I'm saying not because of just the weather or maybe some ghost. But why are they afraid of that? Look at verse 52 with me. I think we get some insight here. Uh, for they did not understand about the loaves. That's one of the capstone pieces of this whole passage. They did not understand the loaves. That phrase right there is teaching us a lot about everything that's happening above. See, they had missed the point of the five feeding of the 5,000. They didn't get it. What's the point of the feeding of the 5,000? Jesus is God. Jesus is the Christ. And if Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is God, and he loves them, then why are they so afraid? It reveals to us something about the disciples at this point. They're a lot like everyone else that was in that crowd. Even though they get a front row seat, they're still spectators. They're not yet participants in what Jesus is doing. See, they still thought in old way terms. They are still thinking kingly Messiah, something like the King David. They're still thinking Jesus is going to operate that way. They had all the information they needed, and they were probably pretty bright guys, but they didn't get it. And how do we know this? How, where do I get off saying that? Look at the end of verse 52. But their hearts were hardened. They had hard hearts. What's hard heart in the Bible mean? It means unbelief. That's the problem. They didn't believe. They they knew who Jesus was, but they didn't believe. They didn't trust. What they have is a faith problem. They don't have an information problem. They don't have an intellect problem. They have a faith problem. They have a, can I completely trust you no matter what 
it might what might happen kind of a problem. So Jesus is exposing their lack of faith. So we have something diffused, something exposed, and lastly, something is revealed. Now, this is kind of what Mark's all about. He's revealing that Jesus is God. He's revealing Jesus' deity. This is Mark's goal. Remember, I told you at the beginning, Mark is trying to persuade you of something. He's trying to show you the times where Jesus proves that he is God. So Mark is a fast pace. Let me get you to the next place that shows you that Jesus is God. And this is one of those times. This passage is loaded with proof. Many of you might be familiar with this story, this antidote, where uh, there's a flood coming and everyone knows it. And this guy's like, uh, everyone's fleeing and kind of going crazy. And this guy's like, no, I'm going to be calm. God's going to take care of me. And at this point, everyone's fleeing town and someone pulls up and is like, hey, you need a ride? Hop in the car. I'll take you. He's like, no, God's got, he'll take care of me. Then the water rise, comes in and it rises, and it's like halfway up his house. And someone comes by on a boat and says, hey, hop in the boat. I'll get you to safety. He's like, no, God's going to take care of me. And then the water keeps rising. Now he's sitting on the perch of his chimney, and a helicopter comes. And it's like, hey, grab the ladder. We'll take you to safety. He's like, no, God's got me. And while the flood comes, and the guy drowns. And he gets to heaven, and he's like, God, why didn't you save me? He goes, I tried three times to save you, right? Well, three times in this passage right here, Jesus shows us that he is the Christ. And he gives them proof that he is God, and they still don't get it. The first one is just the feeding of the 5,000. We've read that passage so many times, we are not blown away by it. That's crazy talk, people. That's it's crazier than a 90-year-old woman having a baby with a 100-year-old man like we talked about last week with Abraham and Sarah. You don't just create something out of nothing like that. And then he gives us two more proofs right here in this passage. Now, to maybe see this, it'd be, we'd be better served to be a first-century Israelite to get this with a whole background in Old Testament knowledge. But we can still get it. Now, the first one that Jesus is making another deity claim, he's kind of showing us, opening the door a little bit, showing us that he's God, comes in verse 50. Read it with me. He says, For they saw him and were terrified. Why would they be terrified of someone walking on water? Because of the ghost thing, remember? Uh, Again, it's like, oh my gosh, it's only getting worse. Storms and now ghosts. And they're losing their minds. But then it becomes pretty clear that it's Jesus. And he says to them, take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. That's a suspicious choice of words, if you know the Old Testament. Uh, In distress, in the Old Testament, who is the only person who can deliver? God. Uh, When Moses is distressed and he's being asked to do something he doesn't think that he can do. And he says to God, you want me to go before Pharaoh? Who am I going to tell him sent me? The, the, The translation is I or I am. This is, the prose here is almost identical 
to that conversation. It is high. Do not be afraid. I am. It is I am. Do not be afraid. Jesus claims the holy name. And again, we're better served as a first century Israelite because if you're a first century Israelite, what is one word you will never say? You never say the name of God. Ever. And then you go and claim the name of God? That's bold stuff right there. You better be able to back that up. So that's the first thing, the clearest maybe instance where we see Jesus also making another deity claim. But the second one is really powerful, and it's in starting in verse, we can see it in verse 48. But in the Old Testament, you guys will know the answer to this question before I ask it. Who has the ability and the, to rule over nature? Who has power over nature in the Old Testament? God, right? And in the Old Testament, only God can walk on water. So when we see this passage right here, that should be enough. Jesus is walking only where God can walk. So what does that make him? That's pretty cool, but it gets cooler. That'd be enough, right, to see this miracle, Jesus walking only where God can walk. But listen to some of the precise language here. And at the end of verse 48, right before 49, it says, He meant to pass by them, but. So Jesus is going to see them and just walk right past them, right? I was like, whoa, what? Let me just ask you another time in Scripture where God passes by someone. What's he do? He shows him his glory. Moses cleft in the rock. God passes by him and shows him his glory. Elijah, God passes by him and he shows him his glory. See, Jesus, walking only where God can walk, was going to pass by them and show him his glory. Gets even better. We'll, we'll start to go to the end here with this. If you, uh, you can listen to this, you can turn to Job chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 8 and 11. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled or treaded the ways of the sea? Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. In the Old Testament, we see the one who's treading on water and passes by. But the problem in Job chapter 9 is what we see in there 11. He passes by, but I do not see. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. That's the same problem the disciples are having right now. They have all the information. They have the intellect, but they have a faith problem. He, he is passing by, but they do not see. But this is precisely why Jesus dismissed the crowd. He diffused the situation. This is precisely why he dismissed himself. Because Jesus came to take what was veiled in the Old Testament, just like in Job, and make it visible. He came to make sure that what was not understood or perceived would be perceived. He dismissed everyone because he was focused on the cross. 
the place where God would pass by and show his glory. And that glory in the face of Christ would be seen and understood once and for all. See, the crowd and the disciples were a lot like us when we were sitting in math class and the teacher was like, it's right there, do you get it? And I don't get it, I'm confused. And Jesus is like, and you know, that's why I'm heading to the cross to make sure that you do see it and that you do get it. They saw, they took in the information, but they had a faith problem. So let me close by asking you a simple question. Are you a spectator like they are? Or are you participant? Are you one who sees it all but doesn't get it? Or have you got it? Have you seen Jesus for who he is? Have you seen his glory? Have you trusted in Christ for salvation? And if you have, that's life-changing. That's life-altering. The world, you see it differently. And let me just ask you a question. If you really have trusted in Christ, how, how's that helping you in your boat right now? Because I don't care what you're doing, how great life's going. You're always in the boat, and there's always stress. Whether it's real, like the weather, or imagined, like a ghost. We always are in a boat under stress. Do we learn the lesson of the woes? When you're tempted, what are we going to do? Pray, retreat, diffuse the situation, or entertain it? And how are we doing loving our neighbor? Jesus came to make us friends with him. And it says we love him, we'll love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. I think maybe the first thing in loving your neighbor is to show them Jesus with your words and with your life. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for your goodness to us. We know that... uh, Apart from you, there is no hope. Uh, Thank you that you came to us and you came to redeem us and to make us yours for living a life that we could not live, to give us one that we could not imagine. So, Father, pray for this week for us that we would be men and women who go out and that we live by faith, that we would trust you and that we would walk with you and to walk by faith even when We are under distress because we know the antidote to distress is your presence and your word. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.